Okay, as in go. Sorry, one second. Fork Tales, a podcast that feeds the food and beverage world. Oh, awesome. Fortales is brought to you by Vigor, a branding and marketing agency for passion-driven, innovative restaurant, beverage, and hospitality brands. Learn more at vigorbranding.com. If you love what we're serving up, please give Fortales a five-star review on your podcast service of choice. Think of it as a tip for good service. everyone. Today, instead of having a guest to interview, I wanted to share a new podcast from our friends at QSR Magazine. This podcast is called QSR Uncut, and it's a weekly podcast with Danny Klein and his uh, cohort, Ben Colley. Uh, I had the pleasure of appearing on the podcast last week in their second episode, so I thought it'd be great to share that with you all today so you can get a listen to what they're doing over there at QSR. Enjoy. and welcome to the second episode of QSR Uncut. I'm your host, Danny Klein, Editorial Director at Food News Media, publisher of QSR and FSR, and joined again by my colleague and co-host, Ben Coley. And we actually have a special guest this week in Joseph Zala, if I pronounce that correctly, Managing Director of Vigor. But I will give uh, Joseph a couple minutes here just to kind of introduce himself, do it much better than I can possibly do it. He's also got a book out there that I know he shamelessly wants to plug, and we support that here at QSR Uncut, so I'm going to take it away. Awesome. Yeah, I'm Joseph Zala, and like you said, Managing Director of Vigor, also uh, curator and critic and founder of Grits and Grids, and then, um, as you alluded to, most recently author of The Bullhearted Brand, mm-hmm. uh, building restaurant brands that charge ahead of the herd. So really excited. That's about to be on sale shortly. All right, cool. Well, we appreciate you joining us. You know, this is, as we said last week, a new thing for us. Last week was one pilot, and this is the second. <laughs> um, and on that, just kind of some housekeeping. You know, thank you to everyone who did listen last week. We had a very good response. You know, feel free to, you know, leave us an iTunes review. Those really help the algorithm out. And as I said last week, it doesn't actually matter what you say in the review itself, only that you leave one. That's apparently all that uh, iTunes really cares about. So say that you like school or the clouds or QSR magazine, all are the same to us in terms of uh, what we're talking about here. And, and also just as a magazine, you know, please subscribe. It is free to any restaurant industry professional. We have e-letters across both sides of the segments too, and those are also free. And um, just in terms of the questions themselves, you know, we are crowdsourcing these and, you know, I got a great response, but, you know, if you want to participate in that, if you want me to answer a question or all of us too, and, you know, give you a little bit of a shout out, you can reach me through LinkedIn, you send me a message, email me, you call me, really doesn't matter either way, but I welcome all feedback. So um, the other thing too, this week, we're going to do a little bit different here at the beginning, and we're going to begin with a segment that we're going to call Ben's Deals. And so for anybody who works here at Journalistic, which is our parent company, you know, Ben gets more excited about restaurant deals than probably anyone that I have ever met, especially the three for 10 at Chili's, which is something that he waxes poetically on. So I'll open the floor for you, Ben, just talk a little bit about what's going out there and the fast food you know, world for people to go chase in the, in the value seeker business. Well, let me preface uh, this uh, segment by saying that I am a very uh, value-driven customer. So whenever you hear uh, restaurants speak about value and the importance of value to the customer, they are speaking directly to people like me. Um, So the first one I have on my list, um, obvious one, it's the big news of the day. The McRib is coming back to McDonald's. The McRib is coming back. November 1st. Actually, it marks the 40th anniversary of the McRib. It launched first in Kansas City in 1981, and it has been um, periodically torturing customers ever since. Um, have you ever that, had the McRib, by chance? I have not had the McRib, but my mom loves it. I know she's a big fan, and she waits 
with bated breath every time, um, waiting for it to come back every time it goes away. Yeah, I, I wrote this on social media earlier that I feel like the McRib is one of those sandwiches that we all remember where we were when we first ate it, <laughs> whether or not it was a good or a bad experience. For me, I was in a cafeteria in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, I don't remember any other backstory, but I do remember getting the McRib, and I, I think it is an unforgettable sandwich. Depending on how you want to view that, I don't know, if, you know, Joseph, if you've had one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm laughing over here because uh, I don't remember exactly where I had my first one, um, but I do remember the feeling of, well, for me. I think I made a mistake. <laughs> right? It, it, it's, it's like you can tell you shouldn't like it. Um, as, as someone who like loves food, I'm like, this should not be as good as it is. But I have the same um, feeling with McDonald's uh, McNuggets as well. Like I freaking love those things. and I know I'm not supposed to. That's how they get you. Yeah. Yep. yeah you can't quit the McRib. So that's you the can't. reality of it. But all right. Yeah. What we got next? Next one is um, <clears throat> Caribou Coffee. They are starting a subscription program. It's, this is sort of um, it's not it's not it's sort of different from what Panera is doing. Uh, Caribou's um, more doing it as a delivery service where you can choose what you want delivered, and you can determine like the frequency of, of which you want it delivered. And, and this has been a growing trend in the industry as of late. A lot of um, companies out there have been turning to subscription services um, to uh, build loyalty and to really leverage that uh, digital customer. Some other examples, of course, as I mentioned, Panera has had one since uh, last year, and that's gotten a glowing response. And Taco Bell also has a subscription out there. They're testing a taco one out in Arizona where people can get one free taco every day for 30 days. They're testing that at a Few select, um, few select locations over in Arizona. And then a couple of uh, health-based brands like Clean Juice, Urban Plates are testing out uh, subscription programs. And then if you want to go back even further back in the past, Burger King tested out a coffee subscription program back in, I believe it was 2018 or 2019. So subscription services are, are starting to get a little bit more um, notice and traction out there um, as I yeah, think they... as go more toward digital. The Burger King one, um, you know, was was kind of maybe too ahead of the game. I think it makes more sense now in terms of how much, you know, off-premise and delivery and these things have picked up. But, you know, a lot of people have asked me, though, what's really the point of this, especially in Taco Bell's case, who eats one Taco Bell taco? Nobody, of course. Do you really want to eat one Taco Bell taco every day? It seems like a, a kind of a crazy concept. But, however, the, the real lure to me is uh, – it's just in this concept of attaching other things to it and that loyalty part and, and really digging into that element. You know, the fact that you would go to Panera and get coffee and then maybe also get a pastry. You know, that, that kind of concept is, I think, really where the, the future win there. And, and also the retention battle of, you know, you can get customers onto loyalty, but, you know, how do you keep them? That kind of idea. It's really not that different, actually, than getting, you know, page views to your website, but then it not being random people who come in and out every month, but getting them to keep coming back. So, so for Car caribou, is it like a hot coffee delivered or is it their, their beans? I think it's like their, their package product. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's more in line with like a black rifle coffee company or one yeah. of those brands that, okay. I was like, man, that's kind of, what, what kind of privileged world do we live in where someone's <laughs> just going to deliver a black cup of coffee to you every morning? <laughs> hey man, it's coming. If someone would only sell the machine that could make that coffee for you. Wow. That's the future I want to live in. <laughs> okay. So the third and final deal is Wendy's is launching a Friday freebies in October. And a little bit of background about what this deal is before I get into the details. Wendy's recently launched a, a new hot and crispy fry. So they are, they're improving their fry and to, to build, um, you know, notoriety and promotion around this uh, new fry. They will have, they're having a deal where every single Friday um, with the purchase of a medium fry, you unlock um, a free deal. So 
I think a couple of Fridays in October, you can get a free chicken sandwich with a purchase of a medium fry inside the app. And I think on a um, another Friday, you can get free chicken nuggets with a purchase of fries within the app. So they're um, doing a heavier promotion of their improved uh, fry in um, throughout the month of October. And then to um, make the offer even sweeter, they're also offering a $0 delivery fee every weekend in October. So if you are interested in uh, Wendy's fries and the improved fry, um, they will be having a list of uh, special deals every Friday throughout the month. I have personally not had that new French fry at Wendy's. I I'm not, cannot speak I'm, to it. <laughs> I'm not sure if they have, um, I think I, they had the, um, during their last month, they had a virtual a meetup where they really went into detail about the um, improved fry and the texture and all the, the background of it and, and research they went in, that went in all into the production of the fry. And I believe um, they said the uh, rollout would be sometime around this time frame. So it's, it's just, I think it's just in the beginning stages of the fry um, getting out to the consumer. And I guess um, in October they're doing the heavier push. Yeah, so so I don't know Ben if you remember this. I'm I'm sure Joseph does. Is back when Wendy's was had the uh, the yellow packaging. That was oh, to yeah. me kind of the, <laughs> the the iconic version of the brand of my childhood in terms of ordering baked potato, chili, a frosty, and you know a bacon or double bacon cheeseburger in one stop, and that being what was so unique. But I, I will say from those memories, the fries were probably the thing that needed the most improvement just in terms of they were always kind of a step below, I think, what the perception of McDonald's was. So so probably a good move on their part, I think, at least a proactive one for sure. Yeah, I'll throw myself under the bus. I um, I really love those damn fries. <laughs> like, love the, old ones. <laughs> the, the, the chunky, the chunky, like they're kind of like chunky russet potatoes. I don't know why. I just find them to be – I'd put them as number two, I think, in the big three. So like McDonald's. Love them or hate them, man, their fries are so good. And then I love Wendy's fries. So I'm going to go to Wendy's tonight and get my fries before they change them on me. Is um is Burger King 3 there? Is that what the – Yeah, Burger King I think would be number three because then you get into like weird, weird like uh, crinkle and, and curlies and I'm like, oh, what are we doing, guys? Like let's just <laughs> stick to the sticks, you know? I, yeah, I, I do love the uh, Arby's curly fries though. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, and, it's like a craving though. Eh? It's like – I don't really see them as French fries. I don't know. Yeah, it, it, yeah. I saw something on Twitter the other day about um, tater tots. You know, being <laughs> is that a French fry? And the answer is definitely no. <laughs> but true. but you know, we all teach their own, I guess. Okay, we will jump into questions here. So I'm going to start with a question that was actually on your page, Joseph, from Stacy Shulist, who. You know, I, I wrote down here marketing leader, advisor, and all-around restaurant genius, um, which I hope she appreciates. But I've heard a lot from her over the years. She's one of those kind of industry mavens or wealth of knowledge. So definitely give her a follow or, or reach out to her if you're interested in just hearing about insight in the industry. But anyway, her question is, would love to hear your thoughts on internal branding and marketing to your employees how important you think this is and what are the best practices for doing so. So Joseph, I'll let you start since this was your question in reality. Yeah, sure. Uh, Stacy's great. And so I'm glad you picked that one out. Um, I think now more than ever, it's become very clear how important marketing internally is. Um, you know, we, we do not need to wax on about the, the troubles that we're having as an industry and finding help, uh, let alone good help. And I think the industry as a whole is realizing we have a bit of a perceptual problem when it comes to careers. Um, you know, the, these what what it, what does a career in restaurant mean? And I think for a lot of folks, it just means pushing buttons on a uh, register unhappily as a means to an end. But my gosh, this career, I mean, this industry has so much upward potential. And I don't think we do a very good job of telling that story collectively. And so I think that that starts with internal marketing communications, understanding what your brand means, not just to the people outside, but to the people internally, and why does it matter? And then following up and um, delivering on your promises as a brand. So for instance, if you are 
a fun, offbeat, quirky brand and you bring someone inside the four walls and you drill them into the ground with immovable processes like a dictator, people don't want to really work like that. Um, a good case in point would be Dutch Bros. I don't know if you've been to one, but the people there have more than drank the proverbial Kool-Aid. They are in, you know, and there's something magical happening there. And I think that doesn't mean you have to be fun, quirky, offbeat. It just means you have to make a promise, make a statement and stick to it. And then make sure you're telling that story and living it through operations, procedures, training, support and benefits. And and before everyone gets scared about the B word, benefits in the truest sense, meaning like what is the benefit of working here over, say, the person down the street that's doing the same thing um, that can come in many forms. You know, it can come with, of course, college assistance and things like that. But maybe it's just having one paid day off a month, you know, just call it what you want. Come, come and take it kind of thing. Um, so I, I think it's incredibly important. And, and if, if you have restaurant leaders that haven't recognized this need, I don't think they're going to be around much more, you know, much longer. Yeah. I, I think all of those points are very vital. I was talking to Portillo's recently and Portillo's probably like Dutch brothers, like Chick-fil-A, like some of these other concepts you say in a cult-like kind of uh, format, and you say that in a lovingly manner because, like you said, it seems like everybody in there has truly drunk the Kool-Aid. Um, you know, when I was talking to them, they mentioned a lot of these kind of buzz things of, you know, it's like a family and this and that, but but some things they're doing that are, are tangible. You know, they're giving $3 an hour extra on holidays to hourly employees who work. And, you know, at the end of the day, was $3 an hour that much money? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I guess not. But it means a lot to somebody that, you know, you're just offering them that kind of, you know, you listened to what they wanted and gave it to them and they couldn't get that elsewhere kind of thing. And and I think those things are all important, you know, and, and it's so true that in restaurants, we don't often talk enough about you know, the story of, of sort of the rags to riches from the dishwasher to the corporate office, you know, because the restaurant industry has long been one of those few places you could really enter into the workforce kind of no matter what your background is. And yet you can still also climb the ladder. And that, that, that is becoming an important part of this. And then also understand that it is going to be a stopover for some people. And how do you make it one that's not miserable like you like you brought up there? And some of that, and again, going back to Portillo's, they, you know, they're big on cross-training people, you know, so you have the ability to not do the same job every day and, and just kind of things along those lines. And, and I, I do think that being able to actually illustrate that within your own organization is such a important thing. I mean, Jersey Mike's is a good example of this. The other day, you know, we're going to wrote a story about their culture and someone wrote, it's, you know, it's not the culture, it's the food. And and my argument to that is that there are a lot of restaurants with great food. And then why are some doing so much better than others, including Chick-fil-A maybe being the best example of this. And if you don't think the culture is important and employees drinking the Kool-Aid and like Joseph said, probably going to end up not being all that successful. So that's part of the product, you know? I mean, it, it perplexes me for someone to say that because if I had a dollar for every time I spoke to a restaurant, um, you know, entrepreneur looking to start a concept or one looking to grow their concept and what makes you different? Great food, great service. And I always laugh because I'm like, congratulations, you're in the industry. Um, <laughs> but how do you think great service manifests? It doesn't manifest by creating mindless automatons that just follow procedures. It, it, you know, great service ha is a byproduct of a strong, real, authentic culture that people have bought into. Um, so that person's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think someone the other day said to me, you know, how does Chick-fil-A manage to have, you know, 2,000 restaurants, 2,600 restaurants, and every employee is nice, you know, generally speaking. And it's one of those things that, of course, they have operations and procedures to, you know, get that and they're stricter on some things than, than other people are and all that kind of stuff. But at this point, it's feeding itself. You know, you go to work for a Chick-fil-A and it's like you're putting on a mask. You're going to go become this person for a day. You're going to be a Chick-fil-A employee because this is what goes viral on social media. This is who they are. And you wouldn't be working there if you didn't embrace that. And and that's, I think, what's also happening at Jersey Mike's now in some and Portillo's and Dutch Bros, even though I have not been to one, <laughs> but just this idea that once you once you get that through the door, that becomes something 
that is so much to me more valuable than just the quality of your food and in, in quick service. But, um, but yeah, we'll jump. Uh, so Ben, I'll let you take the first crack at this next question, which is from Ben Pryor, who's the head of innovation at spot on. He also worked at noodles and company as a trainer and development leader for a decade. And I went back even further and saw that he started out as an assistant GM at Brinker. So Again, going back to our stories of how you work your way up this industry. But um, so the question that Ben came up with is when the proliferation of virtual concepts and brands or with the proliferation of virtual concept and brands, what advantages, challenges or opportunities do established brands have over the next 18 months in order to thrive? Well, I would say that you have to understand that with, with the, the, the virtual brands were the result of a time when, you know, so many restaurants out there needed an extra revenue source. So I guess to even, before even answering that question, you have to wonder, you know, what are, what's the, what's the lifespan of virtual brands and how many of these will actually continue into the post pandemic? Is it something just to, um, take care of things for how, how conditions are right now, or do a lot of these restaurants see that as a long-term venture? Of course, some do like, you know, Chili's and who have, it's just wings. You know, that's an example of, of a very, a lot of um, investment in a virtual brand that's going to probably be for the long term. But some of these other ones, um, there's no, there's no telling if it's um, a long-term solution or just a kind of short-term kind of plug in a tire sort of thing. But I really think it's it cannot be understated, you know, the importance of brick and mortar and having a sign out there that consumers can see and having a restaurant that you can actually walk into and to be able to, you know, like we were talking about in the the other question, you know, the culture that you're able to display and you just have to I believe it's just a matter of, you know, trusting your brand and trusting your product, especially some of these companies that have been around for for decades you know trusting that legacy and trusting that that connection that you have with consumers is going to outweigh these um these virtual brands that have been popping up just within the past few months i think it's it's a matter of being able to lab, leverage the the brand equity that you have and being able to leverage the product quality that you've um, been known for for much longer, much longer before the pandemic even arrived, and you know, letting customers know that it's going to be the same um, when the, when the post-pandemic um, period comes. And I also think, you know, of course, we all know off-premises is here to stay. It's it's going to be a higher mix at restaurants, um, much larger than it was pre-pandemic. But dine-in is returning, and the value of being able to sit in a restaurant is returning, and you know, people have shown eagerness to get back out and want to, you know, enjoy that experience. So that dining experience is still very valuable. And I think it will be, I think a lot of restaurants are recognizing that dining will still be valuable um, in the future while also, you know, creating that place for off-premises. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that there's a huge divide in this virtual brand conversation that's going to lead to a major shakeout probably within the next year or so. And I think it's, there were two types of virtual brands that, you know, basically erupted out of this. One was what we would maybe call an opportunistic brand, you know, which was just a brand that was created out of thin air to go out and, and sort of make good of the fact that there was suddenly so much delivery and, you know, and takeout and being, you know, infused into the industry from consumers who were being introduced to it, or just were scared to go dine out. And in that world, you have, you know, a lot of these celebrity, you know, type concepts and, and things like that, that are incredibly powerful trial products, in my opinion, to get someone to go, okay, well, you know, I was talking to, uh, you know, James Walker over at Nathan's and, you know, he said, well, you know, I'm a huge Star Wars buff. So if Mark Hamill had a burger company, I would obviously be first in line, but you know, if the burger sucked and the experience sucked, then I would never come back. And I, I think at the end of the day, there's going to be a lot of that. I think there's going to be a lot of these virtual brands that sort of burst to the seams and then fall off when people realize that they're not, you know, really much more beyond whatever the gimmick might be. 
um, you know, and, and maybe they have great food. Is it worth it, you know, beyond going there once or twice? We don't know the answer to that yet. But then I think the more exciting corner of this business are the brands who are using this virtual growth to actually spread their brand awareness to satisfy it in markets that it already exists that they can't open in, you know, at the pace that they want to. And, you know, Nathan's is a really good example of this because what they're basically doing is, you know, they're growing through, you know, companies like Franklin Junction and Reef by, you know, saying, okay, you know, we'll bolt on, you know, Nathan's into an existing kitchen facility, you know, whether that's an independent restaurant, whether that's a, you know, a facility itself, like a reef, you know, and then be able to go and deliver Nathan's to a market that they don't have a brick and mortar. However, there's still Nathan's, right, who has, you know, sold 700 million hot dogs last year. So, so they're not really trying to build a brand out of nothing here. They're just using these growing webs of, of channels to, you know, kind of, meet demand that was there that they couldn't serve before. And I think there's massive potential in that concept moving forward because, you know, you could go seed markets all over the place, whether or not you want to go and actually build infrastructure afterwards, I guess is, you know, maybe not even that an important part of it. However, you know, you could go to, again, using Nathan's, they went to Brazil to kind of try it out. They knew they had the demand, but it was going to take them years to get there otherwise. And that kind of stuff I think is, going to be huge for a lot of restaurants. I, but personally, I don't know what the longevity is of the concept where people don't know where the food comes from and it's not an actual restaurant. <laughs> you know, I think we need to check back on that in a year. It might be big. It might still continue. But, you know, last I heard, I, I think I'd seen there's something like, you know, a hundred thousand of, you know, these virtual brands into the marketplace on third party aggregators right now. And that, Sounds like too many to me, but, you know, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think I think it's a bit of a bubble. Um, not that the bubble's going to burst and they're all going to fall apart, but the strong will survive. And, and so how do we define strong? I would say the strong ones are the ones that have embraced uh, branding beyond just a logo and a cute name, um, that have really thought about brand as business, um, because you know, that's essentially what it is. You know, your, your brand is your business. Your business is your brand. And so, when you think of it through that lens, the question starts to develop around product mix, uh, differentiation in that product mix, uh, and then things you can control. Um, and when you're talking about virtual brands, there's a lot you cannot, but there's a lot that you can. And so, things like the packaging, the food packaging, not the the design, but how can you deliver a viable product to people that stays warm if it's a warm, you know, a warm item, um, doesn't uh, condensate and create uh, rubbery French fries, Um, you know, things like that. And I think that's where those leaders really need to focus in and make sure that they're doing the absolute best they absolutely can in this scenario. Um, I I see a future for it, though. I I just I think that that future, like you said, Danny, is um, still a bit foggy. In, in, in yeah. what that looks like. And, and, and I think, yeah, and I was just going to say, I think the future is really bright too for the chilies of the world who are taking corners of their menu that weren't getting any, you know, recognition on third-party delivery platforms and using this to rebrand themselves, you know, for an audience that is just searching something specific, you know, like if someone just wants burgers, they're, they're probably not going to land on you know, IHOP. <laughs> right. But, you know, if you, if you create a burger, you know, virtual brands, I think that that's a really great and exciting element of this, um, to come out of that. Like it's just wings, for example, that's a, that's something that is, you know, I, I think, you know, Ben might know this for sure. I think it was a $150 million opportunity and they that. Where they were to grow it. And that would just simply not have happened on its own. They were not consent. Yeah. $150 million worth of being, you know, a wings concept on DoorDash as a Chili's, you know? So yeah, that part I think is, is going to last and it should. Yeah. And with that, just for anyone listening, we, we don't need another wings brand. Like we just don't. And, and, you know, cause I think we're very well covered there. I think you have great players out there doing great wings. Um, so when we talk about what's next, I think it really is, like you said, Danny, that innovation. And um, it can also be a really great way for larger brands who are a bit, uh, I hate to say, you know, more doppy, more, more slow to move. 
to, to rapidly test viability of new products and then see, do we have a market for this? Will this sell before you adopt it into a menu? So I think innovation and just thinking a bit different about this and maybe taking your mind out of the traditional idea of what a restaurant does could offer up a lot of opportunities to capitalize on um, positive effects of virtual. Yeah, Ben did get a order of uh, Cheetos wings from a uh, virtual brand. Yes. <laughs> Cosmic wings, right? Cosmic Review. wings inside uh, that they're made inside Applebee's uh, kitchens. They they gave me um, a taste of pretty much the whole menu: the the, the flaming hot, the regular Cheetos. Um, I think there was boneless and um, tenders. I think there was, but mm-hmm. um, very very interesting twist. They. They definitely went for a little bit of shock value with uh, that product with the, the, the Cheetos flavors. I also, right. well, this is yeah. kind of sort of off topic, but um, yeah, I saw Buffalo Wild Wings just released a little time Doritos flavored um, wing sauce. So oh, Frito-Lay really is um, inserting itself into the uh, restaurant menus as of late. And that's nothing new. I mean, they were doing that with KFC over the years. Um I, I have not tried either of those things, so I don't, I don't know how I feel about them. But, <laughs> but it looks, it looks right. cool. Yeah, it definitely does feel like it, you're kind of narrowing your uh, customer reach when you um, develop a Cheetos-flavored wing. So. Uh, yeah, and, and maybe that's the point, though. You know, Maybe you, you're trying to target someone very specific, and you can do that virtually in a much more cost-effective manner than you could with an LTO. So. I, th- I think that's has legs too. Um, and, you know, it's a good example of cosmic wings. You know, they had kind of first started out as a, you know, it was neighborhood wings by Applebee's and it really wasn't that successful. So they took their, their own name off of it. Kind of go back to what I said before is that people don't, that power of branding and association and people not associating Applebee's with wings was, was something that they had to get around. And, and this allows them an the opportunity to do that. And so I think that's where we will see this continue. And like Joseph said, there you still have to pay attention to the same tenets of running a restaurant in terms of packaging quality and so forth. You know, and that's where we'll we'll kind of have winners and losers. And I do think that time is coming. You know, perhaps when dine-in returns on in full force. But yeah. All right, and we will move on to the third question here, which is from Carl. I think this is Arsborn, if I pronounced that correctly. Either way, he is the co-author of a best-selling book, Delivering the Digital Restaurant, which I just got my copy personally this week. I have not started reading it, but I see it all over LinkedIn all the time. So Carl's question is, under what conditions can you imagine from the digital disruption occurring in our industry that a storied brand could fade away, like Sears and big box retail? So before I hand this over to you, Joseph, since you are the branding guru, I will Tell a story from a few years ago. A&W actually came to our office to teach us how to make root beer, which was pretty great. <laughs> but um, you know, one thing that, that they brought up, or the CEO Kevin brought up, was that the Atlantic had put them on a list of brands destined to fail within the next X amount of years. You know, And then they had kind of emerged from the uh, depths. So what I will say as a quick answer to this, it is very difficult to kill a restaurant chain. <laughs> especially one with serious equity. I mean, you've had a lot of brands that have nearly disappeared. Bennigan's comes to mind, Chapter 7, yet they still beat on. Um, you know, Quiznos is one, too. You know, you've had a lot of chains over the years that have gone from being maybe really, really big to a blink there. But oftentimes, you know, like I said, it is it is very difficult to end the life of a restaurant brand. But with that said, you can definitely dig yourself into a massive branding hole. So. You know, what are, what are your thoughts on this, Joseph? Yeah, uh, you know, I think it, it ladders up to a singular word, and that is cultural relevance. I think that's really what it's all about. Um, you know, I just finished reading a great book by Greg Creed um, called Red Marketing. And relevance is the R in red. And it's actually a really good, um, I think, insight. And so why, why do brands fail? Why do they close up like a Sears or... Um, so on and so forth. And I think it's because they fail to recognize a cultural shift that is beyond trend, that is truly a shift. And they fail to respond or better get ahead of it and be be proactive in that shift. Um, so, you know, 
a good case in point of of that happening would be Yellow Pages. Uh, Yellow Pages, I know it's not a restaurant brand, but they stuck to their book quite literally, even though people were going way off the book. So what what you know, being Monday morning quarterback here, what what could have Yellow Pages done? Well, created power partnerships with the likes of Google or the likes of Apple to be the engine that runs systems like Yellow Pages on their uh, platform. Um, but they did it, you know, and the advertising model didn't work anymore. You know, so there's just a lot of misses there uh, that, of course, a Monday morning quarterback can can say, you know, I obviously wasn't in the trenches with them. But there was a cultural shift that was way beyond trend. Trends come and go, but cultural shifts are, are, are permanent. And so when people talk about the digital revolution or anything, like we've revolved. It's not a revolution. We're here. You know, we, we, it is now we are in digital life. And so if you have restaurant brands that have only sort of adopted or kind of integrated, they're, they're quickly falling behind. And, and we all know what happens when you do that, you start clamoring for anything. And so how can brands go extinct? Well, they can go extinct by uh, making half-baked attempts at integration, but not really committing. Um, or um, just not even caring and letting, like riding the wave. And so there's brands that have been built, for instance, on mall food courts. It just, they're, they're not working, man. Um, the, the food courts are dead and the, the food there is not good. And so if you haven't stepped away from that and you're just continuing to ride the same old for fear of change, that's how you fail out. Um, I will say that for those that are, you know, stumped for digital revolution, I think for every action, there is an opposite and um, equal reaction. And so those who really lay into full service, non-digital and just really own it and focus on creating um, an experience that cannot be had at a digitally activated uh, restaurant also has a place. So it's not to say that if you're not digital, you're going to fail. Um, and I think you kind of touched on that a little bit, uh, Danny, with A&W. It really is hard to have a huge company fail out. So I think um, it'd be interesting to see what happens like with the likes of like a Ruby Tuesdays or something. Um, right, yeah, they're a good one. Um, because you know they're in a position now where the salad bar, which was their differentiator, has now become. I mean, not only in the COVID bubble is being you know not so relevant, but even before that is being a very widespread and suddenly even more accessible thing in fast casual, and that was kind of the one of the troubles that they were having. But yeah, you know, in the in that red marketing book, um, you know, Greg Creed, former Yum CEO. You know, that story he told, I don't know if you remember, it's just kind of about when he had first started his career and he was working at this, you know, wool cleaning company or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that they they were having issues with some celebrity coming out and, you know, taking their market share. And so his answer was to give away like a knitting book with every X amount of, you know, product or whatever it was. I'm probably yep. butchering that story, but it's, it's basically that concept. So he tapped into the cultural relevance of the fact that, sheep were very important in Australia, which, you know, when he said it, you know, when you read it, you're kind of like, that's, you know, one of those things that sounds maybe not real, Yeah, <laughs> you know, in terms of like, is this possible? But then the answer is yes, because like he said, it made them culturally relevant to people. And that was far more important than pretty much anything else. And so he learned that at that point and it took him through, you know, Taco Bell and, the things that they did there when he was in charge, you know, we all remember the Liberty Bell when Taco Bell, you know, pretended to buy it and people lost their mind. And it's always kind of yeah. a fun story. And then now nowadays, Taco Bell, I mean, if you go back, you know, people kind of forget they were in a lot of PR trouble, not that maybe a decade ago, you know, people were accusing them of having filler in the meat and all this kind of crazy stuff. And, you know, nowadays, you know, you have Taco Bell hotels, you've got <laughs> people getting married at Taco Bell. And, and that was not the case that long ago. They managed, they managed to really create that lifestyle brand. And now everybody is mimicking them, yep. you know, and that's what fast food has become in a lot of circles. Um, so Ben, I mean, do you remember, you know, just, is there a brand from your childhood or a food experience that, you know, kind of stands out that, you know, maybe isn't there anymore, or you just kind of think is something that has stood with you sort of the, you know, for time. Well, Danny, you know me, I've um, sung the praises of Golden Corral uh, many a time. Um, growing up, Golden Corral was the go-to place for any kind of celebration. I'm 
almost, I'm pretty sure I we went to Golden Corral after my high school graduation and my college graduation. So that was always a place for meetups. And of course, the situation that that brand faces right now is, you know, with COVID and safety issues, health and safety issues, and their form of service with the buffet, they, it seems, you know, how sustainable can that be going forward? Are people going to want to eat at buffets um, come post-pandemic? Is that a viable um, form of service uh, going forward? And to Golden Crow's credit, um, they are um, adjusting. I think they've, you know, they've implemented some off-premises um, formats, and I think they're. I think um, the CEO also mentioned even trying to transition into more of a fast casual uh, format. Um, so that's one, you know, that's one where it's it'll be interesting to see how those kind of brands proceed into the future. I know CC's is in that kind of same boat and, and how they're adjusting to everything. Um, also, uh, Pizza Inn is also facing that same struggle. So it'll be interesting to see how those those type of brands, that those buffet brands, and how they can adapt going forward. Well, one thing I'll say about that, just listening to you talk, though, is, is I think there needs to be a little bit of a caution flag for those concepts getting too far away from creating those memories of, of you going to Golden Corral as a, you know, kid celebrating things. If Golden Corral gets too far into being a fast casual, you know, and, and CC's kind of similar for me when I was in college, we went there after football games. I had never been or seen such a thing in New York city. And then I get to, you know, Gainesville, Florida, and I see this $5, you know, <laughs> pizza buffet where the Mac and cheese on the pizza and all this, uh, you know, wild, uh, questionable kind of things yet you know we're also super craveable and so i I always think that there's danger in that brand drift you know you obviously you want to react to people's fears and their concerns with what's happening with covid but i think with all restaurants right now there also needs to be that kind of reset button of being able to pull back some of those pivots that you made over the last you know year and a half or however long this has been at this point because Again, to your point, you know, in the fast casual space, you know, Golden Corral, of course, are they going to compete in terms of just, you know, delivering food to people or are they going to compete as a buffet concept where, you know, you can be a celebratory occasion restaurant and also give people all this option. So my, my thing there is I just think as we begin to emerge from, you know, COVID, you know, that fog and that quarantine lockdown life that a lot of these restaurants need to have that in their back pocket to reactivate who they were before and why they mattered to people, because that, that is a dangerous slope to, it it happened with casual dining back in the millennial rise is that so many of these brands tried to expand their offerings and their menus got bloated because they were chasing a guest who was never going to dine there in the first place. (laughs) And so what ended up happening is that you had this all things to all people kind of world. And then in time, it course corrected itself. And, you know, Chili's is a great example of being proactive here, cut their menu 40% focused on fajitas and margaritas and the things that people knew them for. And they became a lot more successful. Applebee's got back to value. So I think COVID presents that same danger too. Just do not become too much of somebody else in a world that already has too many options. <laughs> it's a great point. I mean, so just tacking on to that, Danny, just to kind of wrap it up, I guess, a little bit on this topic. But the value thing, if people don't see that coming down the pike, steamrolling at us like a juggernaut, you're not paying attention. We have all the makings of a cultural shift back to value mattering way more. And not value in the sense of here is a burger that is high quality meat and I'm going to sell it to you for $15. I'm talking back to when it was like, Hey, can I get a 25 cent taco? Um, you <laughs> right. know what I mean? We're, yeah. we're in inflation right now, which looks like it's going to become stagflation or worse recession. Um, 
we, we know that we have inflated the dollar, dollar and we continue to do so. And without getting political, that has very real economic implications. Now, tack that on top of a generation that lived through parents having to go through the last Great Recession where they maybe lost their job, had to get back on a budget. Um, combine that with just the frugal nature of, uh, Ben, I believe your generation, if I'm going to make a gross assumption. The, the value-minded brand has a big opportunity to take a step back evaluate how it has presented itself um, because I think Golden Corral has a very dated look. Um, so you can update the look, uh, update the experience uh, and the, the visual feel, maintain and reinforce the value. And I think you're going to come out of the gate swinging because that wave is coming. And I do think it's going to become harder for these um, fast casual brands that come with a premium price to compete in that new reality and maybe i'm wrong but it has all the makings man yeah no i I agree with you and i definitely think for sure the quick serves who have kind of moved away from the bottom run of the barbell a little bit lately because they've seen success on that premium side of their menu and are trying to offset inflation need to make sure that that's something they can bring back into the equation and that's where digital has its place right You, you can start to um create a higher quality of team member um, meaning we're not going to put them behind uh, a keyboard and have them mindlessly hit buttons and instead use technology as a way to optimize the bottom line in operations and then create a higher quality um, labor force. Actually, I hate that word, but internal patron um, that is excited to be there. And then that can also lead to uh, STEM um, careers you know, because we're focused more on the technology. So technology may be the means to realize a higher value um, and, and and optimize that bottom line so you can output good food for a good price um, that people love, you know, a brand that people love. Yeah, you know, that, that reminds me of when restaurants call employees associates like Starbucks does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I first started, I did not, I didn't understand what was happening. Uh, you know, now you hear team members all the time. It's uh but um, we'll, we'll jump into our final segment here, which is Ben is going to read a couple tweets. It took me a while to kind of search the internet this time to find some of these. So, you know, if you're a brand and you want to, you know, tweet at our QSR account to kind of let us, um, you know, know what's going on, you know, feel free. So what do you have on that first one, Ben? This first one is from Zaxby's. Um, they are qu- quote tweeting, uh, someone who's who said, "I feel like starting drama today." Everybody, name your favorite type of fries. And below are pictures of your standard fry, your crinkle fry, your curly fry, and a couple other versions. But within that selection are tater tots. Uh, so what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, Zach, Zaxby's quote tweeted that and said straight up, "Tater tots are not fries," which I would have to agree with that. Yeah, I, I agree so with them too. Yes, and um, I, I will say I, I really like Zaxby's fries. Uh, I love whatever that stuff they put on it is. I guess it's just seasoned salt. I have no idea. I guess you would call them a crinkle fry. I don't. I don't want to offend Zaxby's, but I, I think that's what I would refer to their product as. But yeah, tater tot is a entirely different food category in my period, opinion. So anyway, yeah. Oh yeah, what's the next one we got in here? This next one is from Arby's. Coming soon, Arby's Smoked Sweats. So Arby's is coming out with some apparel. Uh, Made for everyone who has ever thought, I wish my sweats were smoked over hickory wood by a Texas pit master and made with the level of craft and care that goes into Arby's real country style rib sandwich. So this is a a real thing. Yeah, well, I'll say that I think I don't know how they if they did this on purpose, but I'm pretty sure this sandwich is kind of going at the McRib, and I don't know how if that's the case they timed that up so well. It must have been some insider information in the uh, in the food world going behind the scenes that maybe somebody leaked something. I, obviously, this probably didn't actually happen, <laughs> but but yeah, it's um, Arby's has got always very interesting sandwiches. I tried the venison one last time around, and I remember walking into the Arby's and the I ordered it, and the employee actually called back to someone saying, "Someone actually ordered this Ar- venison sandwich," and then <laughs> they had no idea how to make it. So hopefully, I, I'm pretty sure from things I heard that was not a normal experience, but it was. Um, it was unique to have a deer sandwich at a fast food restaurant. I have not tried this country style rib sandwich, but 
it, you know, these apparel lines to go along with things goes back to the red marketing and Taco Bell. And this is now suddenly fast food is like a cultural, um, hip thing, I guess. Um, which is, which is cool. You know, I don't know. I don't know if you would wear this, Joseph. It's, uh, I'm wearing them right now. <laughs> uh, I don't think it would. I mean, it, it's fun to see some of the brands try to have fun in that and, and with the merch and the swag aspect. I think some have definitely swung for the fences and hit and some have uh, swung for the fences and missed. Um, but I think it's more about the attention. I think it's more about that social currency than it is about literally getting people into sweatpants. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, we should probably sell QSR swag, but, you know, have to get <laughs> to see if I, if we can get that through. All right, so what's our last one here? Well, wait, if you do, you have to make sure it's made out of a material that doesn't stain or like absorb, because it would literally be for like when you're eating fast food, you know. So like maybe the <laughs> you know what I mean like a Teflon or something. Maybe like un- Under Armour material, <laughs> like a dry fit QSR uh, T-shirt. That's right. <laughs> I think we can find that in the budget. Um, the, 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 the final tweet is from Chipotle and it's a picture of a smoked brisket of course, which is, um, their new uh, menu item. And in, and they quote, and they show this picture and the caption is Chipotle never changes their menu, but they typed it in that funky lowercase uppercase style that has been, what, that, yeah, that was trending, you know, a couple of years ago to like that sarcastic tone. Yeah, yeah, I think you're supposed to read it like uh, Chipotle never changes its menu. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, whenever, whenever I know it's SpongeBob. Whenever I see it, though, it reminds me of those cutouts of like you know uh, ransom letters. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my, my the reason I picked this one was just because I was so surprised that this had sixty three thousand likes and uh, I don't know why. I mean, I, I know that the brisket is a really ambitious and well-received product on their part, and I guess that's kind of the point of it. But I was just impressed that this had that kind of engagement, you know, which was so beyond most of the tweets that I was able to find. So I guess people want to try brisket. I don't know what to make of it, but yeah, it's about. Um, I guess I was impressed. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to taste it. Sure yeah, I, yeah, I got to try it too. It's definitely on my list. Um, you know, I've I've made brisket before. I'm not going to pretend to be some sort of aficionado in that realm, but it's a very difficult thing to make. So, although I imagine they have you know one of these combo oven or combi oven type deals where they mm-hmm. set it and it cooks itself, but either way, um, I'd be very interested to check it out. But anyway, um, Joseph, thank you for joining us. I think we are at the end here and. I appreciate your time. It was fun. So yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it was great. And anybody again, you know, if you want to reach out, you have any questions, let us know. We are always here. You can find Joseph online. I don't know if you have, um, if you want to kind of give him some places to find you. Yeah. Yeah. Check us out at Vigor Branding on social channels. And uh, if you're looking for the book, it's bullhearted.co. All right, cool. All right. Well, thank you everybody. And we'll see you next time. If you love what we've served up, please follow us at Vigor Branding on Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Medium. Fork Tales is produced by the team at Vigor. Audio and video post-productions provided by Zencaster. Music performed by Jet Trash and licensed through musicbed.com. Joseph handles his own hair, makeup, and stunts. Copyright 2003 to 2021, Vigor Graphic Design, LLC. All rights reserved.